Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, a podcast by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and check out the DGA website at dga.org to watch or listen to hours of content, such as past episodes of The Director's Cut, videos of the Guild's 75th anniversary celebration, and long-form interviews from our visual history program. You can access it all for free by going to the website and hovering over the Craft tab. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Lauren Greenfield's new documentary, Generation Wealth. The film continues Ms. Greenfield's examination of wealth culture and the pathologies that have created the richest society the world has ever seen by examining materialism, celebrity culture, and social status. In addition, her investigation reflects on the desire to be wealthy at any cost, the global boom-bust economy, the corrupted American dream, and the human costs of capitalism, narcissism, and greed. Generation Wealth was screened as part of the DGA's documentary series, which aims to spotlight groundbreaking nonfiction films for DGA members and guests by presenting screenings of documentaries as well as conversations with their directors. In addition to Generation Wealth, Ms. Greenfield's filmography includes the documentary feature Thin and the documentary shorts Magic City, Best Night Ever, Beauty Culture, Fashion Show, and Kids Plus Money. She was nominated for the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Documentary for her 2012 feature, The Queen of Versailles, and earned another DGA Award nomination for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Commercials for her always spot, Hashtag Like a Girl. Following the documentary series screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Ms. Greenfield spoke with director Marina Zenovich about filming Generation Wealth. During their conversation, Ms. Greenfield discusses her considerations when creating a multi-platform art piece, serving as the narrator for the documentary, and trying to instill a sense of hope in the movie. I can't even begin to imagine what it must have felt like to make that movie and watch it. <laughs> Please, because I feel some so much how... Um, God, I just woke up. How, uh, what does it feel like after that massive, amazing achievement? Um, well, I think it's been cathartic because I definitely feel a relief. It was um, very overwhelming, and I think the whole kind of workaholic piece of it really evolved in the middle because it was such an overwhelming and almost ridiculously... Um, kind of ambitious task that kept I kept letting get bigger and bigger. Um, because you were doing the book at the same time. Well, I was, I finished the book first and I was already cutting the film, but in a way the film totally changed after that because I didn't really know what I was making until I finished the book. And um, so how far into the editing were you when you realized, I mean, we all go through this, but what was it about the book coming out that kind of changed well, the, course? The book wasn't, um, well, first of all, even in the book, it was like this puzzle that I was putting together. And I didn't really, I had an intuitive feeling that the pieces connected, 
especially the, but I didn't know how they connected, especially the parts like um, the gender piece and um, it took me a while to figure out that the connection to generation wealth was um, that the commodification of the human being was kind of the ultimate degradation and kind of damage of capitalism and that girls' bodies were kind of the like the perfect case study for that and kind of the tragic case study for that. And so it just took me a while to figure out how the pieces connected in the generation wealth part. And that was kind of the process of the book. But then when I wrote the essay in the book, I brought, I started thinking about my own life and how it connected to the work because the book wasn't personal at all and it was very reportage and I've always been more of a reportage verite, like straight documentary journalist, stay out of the story. And, um, and so then thinking about kind of how my personal life intertwined and inspired the work and, and then also as we got into the interviews, how my work affected the people around me too, um, probably came halfway through the editing. And how, willing were you initially to go there? Yeah, no, originally, oh, I should introduce my husband and producing partner, Frank Evers, who's in the back. I think, I mean, it was interesting because um, in a documentary, the editor's kind of like your co-director, and my editor had made other films about artists. He did the Vivian Meyer documentary, and so in a way, he was used to telling a story about a person and that portrait being part of it. And I kept saying, no, this is not a film about an artist. This is a film by an artist. And, <laughs> and he kept wanting to put me in because I think he did see, um, and I came to see as, once I took on making a feature length film that I kind of needed to be the connective tissue con between all of the different stories. But originally it started more in a kind of narrator role. And um, Frank and, and I were both like really against having me be on there, like particularly on screen and all of that. And um, it just kind of evolved. I think that the work is also about how we're all complicit. And in a way, all of my work has been about that. Queen of Versailles was kind of like that, like looking at these extreme characters, but also somehow seeing ourselves in them. And, um, and so, in a way, it made sense to be part of it. And I think also my work for so long has depended on getting really deep and personal with subjects who very generously um, become very vulnerable in the, in the documentary work. And so I guess I felt like looking back, turning 50, it was just like the time to also be willing to be in front of the camera myself. Well, that's, that's the decision. <laughs> then you have to do it, which I know is incredibly hard. And as, because Lauren and I are friends and neighbors and our kids are friends, I watched you kind of give in and it, it, I learned so much about you from watching your mother and seeing, I mean, just the whole tale. So how hard was it for you to go there? Well, I mean, there. I guess there were two sides of it. There was the filmmaker side where I was just trying to make a good film and kind of doing whatever that took. And 
I, I didn't really think that I, when I was a narrator, I didn't really think that I had an arc, so I wasn't going to be really in there. But then when I was doing these interviews and these really relevant themes started emerging, I mean, I think um, I started interviewing my parents and my kids more as representatives of their generation. But then um, when Wait, Noah... What? Yeah, more like the <laughs> more like the the American dream before and then my kids more like the experts on wow. social media. Okay. And so um but then and it was only in the second interview that I did with my mom with with Noah that he that we started talking about us and he said the damage is done. And are and, you crying at that point? Yeah, I was really sad. <laughs> But then it still wasn't going to be part of the movie. Like, we went out to dinner, and my youngest son was like, um, oh, you know, that's just BS. He's just being a teenager. There's no damage. <laughs> and Frank was like, there's no damage. And it, it wasn't going to be part of the movie. But it just kept kind of – I kept thinking about it. And I also um, – I mean, I think I ended the film with – the people kind of waking up. And I think for me, it was also a waking up to kind of hear that. And even the interview, like with the first interview that I did, um, you know, it's so intense, the relationship you have with your subject and you're listening so hard. And I did like a two hour interview with Noah and he said, mom, I think that's like the longest period uninterrupted we've ever talked. And that wasn't part of the interview, it was afterwards, but it started making me think of that this attention that I give my subjects is so intimate and that in like regular life, there's so many distractions and interruptions that in a way he wasn't getting what I gave to like the anorexic girl in Thin or, um, and so that's, so when we did the second interview, we went there and it, it just kind of evolved because in the edit, once that happened, it was mostly in the second half of the film. And so it felt like really disconnected. So then I ended up spending six more months cutting with another editor um, and it ended up being a 30 month edit and kind of recutting it to- To match. To match, yeah, to have me be, part of the story. What I noticed tonight was that both your mother and your son, Noah, when you ask them a question, they ask you the question back. <laughs> that was interesting. They, they never answer. They only ask, yeah. But it, it was fascinating to, um, I'm fascinated by the personal because I, I learned so much. I mean, your mother is such a character and so beautiful and alive. Um, and not taking responsibility. Is she here? <laughs> no, she's not here. <laughs> I would, I would maybe say that to her, but it's, it's, it's intense. Um, let's talk yeah, about. I think with me and Noah, it was like the conversation, kind of. It was like a breakthrough. It kind of moved our relationship. Um, and and with my mom, she didn't really change. <laughs> she kind of um, she accepted it, but. Um, the conversation didn't kind of transform. Interesting. So how did the movie come about? And talk to me about Amazon and you have a theatrical and kind of how, how does that work? Yeah, so um, 
I was working on the book first and the show, and I was not going to make a movie because I don't like making essay films. And I think at some level I knew it would be have to be a personal film, and I didn't want to make that, and I didn't know how to make that. So um, I was Frank was always encouraging me to make the movie, and I was like adamant that I was not going to. And I think I realized how hard it was going to be because. I'm kind of used to stories coming together out there, and this was a story that really came together in the editing room and in the writing, and I've never done that before. Um, but I was gonna, I, I was gonna make it was a show at the Annenberg Space for Photography, and I was gonna make a short film for the museum, and so instead of scene cards in the edit room, we had cards with all of the subjects, characters. And when we started, there were like 500 cards on the wall with people's names on them. And um, my editor almost had a heart attack. But we realized really quickly that it wasn't a short. And at that point, we brought it um, out to, to people to see if there was interest in making the documentary. And Amazon was actually really amazing. I just had a, a dummy of pictures. And I had a little um, maybe 10-minute piece of, of video of some of the characters. But I really kind of took them through the whole book and they um, commissioned it right away. It was their first commission for a doc. And we were really excited to work with them because they're doing traditional theatrical release. So it'll be in theaters for with a 90-day um, hold before streaming. So we were really excited about having that opportunity. Um, so did you write the movie as well? Did your editors talk to me a little bit about that process? It's I ended up, yeah, I ended up writing it, and it ended up being a movie that really was written, but it went through a million um, drafts, and I, and I worked on the narration um, kind of writing and rewriting. And, and some of the writing came from just speaking as in the edit room and then going back and, and tweaking. And, and then in the end, I mean, I'm not an actor, um, and the performance wasn't very good in earlier cuts. And in the end, um, the director, Nicole Holof Center, came into the um, sound studio with me and helped um, direct me for the narration. And what was that like? It was really, uh, she, I mean, she was wonderful and she made me so comfortable that um, I didn't, I mean, it, it wasn't It wasn't really hard at that point. It just kind of, and, and then we used all the new um, voiceover from that session. But yeah, I'm not used to writing, but it just kind of um, evolved as we kind of went through. So, what do you want people to 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 walk away with? Um, well, I I tried to have a little bit of hope in the movie. I think there were earlier cuts where it ended with um, the part about the whole world's gonna blow up this time, <laughs> um, and in a way, that's where the book ends. Is it's the book is really dark, um, and but when I finished the book, it was it was mostly pre-Trump election. And when I was working on the movie, it was mostly post-Trump. And um, I just I just came to something a little bit different in the movie where I felt like 
there was, and, and this part partially came from the writing for the my introduction in the book, but I just realized that there was hope in the insights that people had or that countries like Iceland had, and that I got really taken by the um, metaphor of addiction, or I don't even know if it's a metaphor. It was like real addiction um, that seemed to bring together consumerism with the, all these other desires for the perfect body, to be thin, to um, have more money, to fake it, that it was all kind of this addictive cycle. And, and so um, the crash for me, the financial crash, was kind of the collapse that was, for some people, rock bottom that allowed them to then change, like in the case of Iceland, and even kind of in Florian's case. And, um, and so then I just started seeing with some of the characters' personal crashes, as well as the financial crash, that in that moment of collapse, there was a possibility for agency and change. And in a way, it started to become about this conflict between legacy and the kind of the shit that we're given and that we inherit, and then agency. And um, and so it became more hopeful in the end in the movie. And um, and I felt like it there, there was this possibility in a way with Trump that um, like if we didn't have Harvey Weinstein, we wouldn't have had Me Too. And there was this feeling like it's so bad that there was a kind of engagement where we kind of see what's around us and we can't take the things for granted that we thought we could take for granted, like democracy and freedom of speech. <laughs> <laughs> so let's open it up to the audience. Yes. You don't have to. I think two people here. <laughs> That's too long to repeat. Um, I'll start with the second part. I mean, he, he was saying that... Um, w I, that I was making an equi kind of equivalency between my own workaholism and the other addictions. I mean, I tried to, I tried to ha have it be that in seeing what the other characters were going through, I saw my own kind of addiction mirrored, but not to make, I tried not to make an equivalency um, in the sense that I don't want to, kind of trivialize the tragedy of what um, the other characters were going through with kind of graver consequences than my own. On the other hand, I do think that inside addiction, it kind of, um, there's not a lot of freedom there or joy and satisfaction, and that that cycle um, is similar, whether it's an eating disorder or alcohol or money or consumerism, that it's kind of, um, a coping mechanism to numb um, kind of uh, um, pain or like a, a hole. And I kind of felt like I, I tried to show that in all of the characters, um, including myself with having the story about my mom, um, that I think there is something in the drive to produce and produce and produce where you know, you're never kind of satisfied, and so... Because you're being um, a mom at the same time. It's not like it's just like you feel, you know, happy passion. Um, but, um, so anyway, both are true. I, 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 um, I hope, you know, it's not coming off like I'm 
um, what I go through is the same as Kathy's. But on the other hand, I definitely um, learned about myself by seeing them, particularly with Florian and Suzanne, and seeing talking to um, them. And when Florian was saying about the cost on his family, and I was in Germany on my way to Iceland on a four-week trip, I was thinking about that too. Um, and then the other part of the question, oh yeah, did it change? Yeah, it kind of did, and not that, I mean, I said at the end, like I'm still the same person, I still work all the time and love what I do, but um, I think I did have a kind of awakening in a way by um, having these conversations and thinking so hard about all of the issues that that did change, um, especially my relationship with Noah, and I think also a little bit um, like mediated the workaholism a little bit in the sense that um, I just tried to kind of have like be present when I was there and also um, I mean the movie is also kind of about time and the circle of life and so I also was very conscious of um, how quickly time was passing and kind of having those moments and not missing them. Um, Noah did a Q&A at Sundance and he said that he thought it had changed our relationship. He said that his grandma said to his mom that she wishes they had talked about it sooner and that he was glad that we had talked about it. And I think it's just made us more aware and conscious of each other and how we affect each other and, and, it's, and, and our communication is a lot better. That's great, yeah. Um, thank you. Well, Jeff Beale did the music on, oh, do you have to repeat it? I'm supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> when do you, uh, when do you put the music in, in the edit? Um, the same composer did Queen of Versailles in this film, Jeff Beale, and, um, he's really brilliant and really fast. I, I felt like, I mean, this movie is much more musical than anything I've done before, um, it was, there was something about all the still photography and also the quick kind of tone changes that really wanted music. Um, and we tempt with a lot of music and we tempt with a lot of great music. And it was actually really hard to um, get that, to, to kind of get in the groove quick enough with the composer. And it was a little bit the Sundance nightmare where you have this, hard deadline and we took longer than we were supposed to in the edit and I think we finished early December and so we didn't have a lot of time. We we we, we didn't have enough time, I would say, um, for the music. But what we ended up doing was he wrote a lot of amazing music and it wasn't necessarily right for where it was. And so for the first time, I worked with a music editor. And, and it was actually Jeff's idea, but it really worked, even though I was skeptical at first. But I just started moving around music. And then he would then write you know, new pieces for where we needed it. But um, the music editor was really critical for this. And then um, we did the orchestra earlier than I would have liked. But even after the orchestra, 
we were able to do editing and then the composer was able to add pieces. And then after Sundance, there were a few things that I went back and redid. So I was really happy with where it ended up, but it was actually a really tough process this time. I think it was just very complicated because it goes from kind of funny to tragic really fast. And in a way, almost all the cues are little stories. And um, so it was hard. He complained a lot, but he was happy at the end. But it was just like a lot of music, fast, very complicated um, score. But we were both really happy with where it ended up. What was your budget and what was yeah. your um, schedule? And your I don't think I can say the budget, but I'll say that it was um, – there was a huge amount of production in here because in some ways I had been working on this for 25 years. So that was also what we told Amazon, like you're getting a lot for your money because I brought my whole archive to the table and I also did a short for the Annenberg where we were also filming and then they had the benefit of all of that. Um, and so we probably shot, we started working with Amazon uh, probably like 2015, early 2015. And we probably shot about um, maybe 45 days for the feature-length film. Um, but I had shot a ton before. And actually, I had also... I had always worked with magazines as a way of getting to great subjects and getting taking advantage of great research and stories that I was interested in. And so... I had done um, several shorts that I felt would be important for the Generation Wealth Project um, in collaboration with like GQ and Condé Nast. And so I had kind of thinking about this project done deeper dives into pieces of it. So there was really a lot that was um, already made, but then all of the going back to the characters, all of the personal stuff, that was all the kind of verite that unfolded while I was, knew I was making this film during the edit. And then it was a 30-month edit, and we budgeted for about 10 months. Like, we, I did not expect it to take that long. It was just, like, a beast to wrestle with. It was worth the wait. Um, last question, right? I mean, it was a lot to take in after that. And so, um, no, we all went out to dinner as a family. And my 11-year-old is, like, kind of funny and light. And he just kind of wanted it to be, like, happier times. And so, no, we didn't really deal with it at that point. Um, and it was more, I mean, I think a lot of the things in this film that happened, it was hard to see their significance at that moment. And so I really wasn't sure what I thought at that point or what it meant for the film. I, I think there were only some parts, like the interview with Florian, where I just kind of knew that was the movie happening. But with Noah, um, it was kind of an experiment. I mean, actually, part of the reason we did an interview that day, because I had already interviewed him and I thought I was done, and then I was gonna interview my mom, and she was so nervous for the interview that she literally 
went to the hospital um, thinking she had high blood pressure, and <laughs> everything turned out to be fine. But um, but I was like, this crew, and I have nothing to film, and um, and and what should we do? And so um, I asked Noah if I could interview him again, mostly because I was thinking about that thing he said afterwards, and. Um, and so it was it was really unexpected. And I, I feel like in a way, maybe that's why it turned out to be revelatory is because I just didn't have any expectations or pressure on it. And it was really just like, let's just talk. And then a 17-year-old will always surprise you. <laughs> is that it? Are we out of town time? Thank you so much. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you it's Marina. an amazing movie. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more from our documentary series screenings, check out episode 134, which features director James Keach discussing his documentary, Augie, with director Lynn Littman. You can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.